Let's pray together. So thank you, Father, for all you're doing in uh, uh, the life of our church, in the life of all of us as individuals. And now today is a company of people coming together to hear from you. I pray that we would. Thank you for all that you're doing and teaching us through these times. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We are in a series, a four-week series, which I'll finish next week, on broken signposts, those things that are in our area that we're missing that should be. The first week we talked about Christ. Christ is not broken, but the signposts leading to Christ are. That was two weeks ago. Last week we talked about uh, our walk and sometimes how we as Christians have not done what we should do. And today we're going to look at character and the loss of character uh, in Christians. And again, I'm not speaking to you in particular necessarily, but to all of us corporately. We'll be in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 17, which we'll read in just a minute. But what I'd like to do to introduce this is look at three distortions that have been occurring uh, over the last few years in our country among those who call themselves followers of Christ. The first distortion or shift is this. It's a shift from being God-focused to being me-focused. Now, this is something that's been in our society for multiple generations and probably since the beginning of time, but it's moved into the church. It's moved into followers of Christ that are more interested in what it is about me than what it is about God. Even to the point I have so many people do this, and you probably have done it too, and I've done it on occasion, but we kind of go, God, what do you have for me today? That's not what this book is about, by the way. You think this book is about you, you are solely missing something. This book is about God. This is a God book, not a me book. Now, what's interested is God is interested in me, and God will do things for me, but if you go, boy, I just didn't get anything out of this, this this week in my reading, didn't do anything for me. Well, remember, this book is not for you. It's about God. Then it's about God. Then it's about life. It tells us about life and the things about life. Then the third thing it tells us about ourselves. But a lot of times we flip it upside down and go, what is it about me? And I want to learn about life. And boy, if I can get something about God, I'll be happy. And if I don't, I don't. That is a distortion that we have missed. Following Jesus Christ is about Jesus Christ. Following God is about God. We're the followers, yes, and it's important about us, yes, but please remember that God is the head of this world. Jesus Christ is the head of the church, and we are the body underneath him, and we have flipped that around. Another distortion that has been, has been a distortion from authority to preference. People talk so much about what they prefer as about what God says. And I'm talking about followers of Jesus now, not people out there. Of course, they're going to do what they want to do. That's what you're supposed to do. If you don't have a God, just do what you want to do. But we've kind of moved and belief and behavior have become disconnected. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes as we look at Colossians chapter 3, but there's this disconnection between it, and we've moved from authority, God's authority, to kind of what do I prefer? 
you know, I don't like this church because I prefer this and I prefer that. And I hear more about preferences than I do hear about people interested in God. And that has been a big shift even since I was a child. Then the third one is probably the worst, if it can get any worse, and that is the shift from the concept of absolute truth to relative truth. Now, we've seen this in the world for a long time, but we're seeing this in church as well. The old word is this, I mean, the old is situational ethics. That was a book that came out in the 1960s, but the word is still true. What we think is true is true because of the situation we are in. That's what situational ethics is. That means it's relative. The question becomes, is there any absolute truth? Yes, yes there is. What is absolute truth versus just something that is true? This is confusing, especially for those of you who are second language English speakers. I'm using the same word truth and truth. There's truth that is true for all people, all times, all places. It's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's absolute truth. Then there's things that are true today that may not be true tomorrow. The uh, rules that guide our streets. Remember uh, years ago on I-95, it used to be 55 miles an hour. Now it's 70 miles an hour. And for those of you, sometimes it's 85 or 90 miles an hour. (laughs) The truth kind of moves around based on technologies and based on different things. That's not absolute truth. That's just the truth that the Department of Transportation puts out, and it might change. Well, we still have to obey it, even though it's not absolute. But we're talking about, in the Scriptures, there's some absolutes. But we as followers of Christ in this nation have kind of lost the sense that there are really absolutes, that there is an absolute right, and there are some absolute wrongs. There is a God who's real, and there's people who are flawed, and that's absolutely true, and there is a Christ who bridges that gap between the absolute God and the absolute fallacy of humans, and is Jesus Christ. I mean, these are the truths of the Bible, and they're absolute, but we've somewhat lost that. And I just want to describe it before, I'm going to have Elizabeth come up in a moment to read Colossians 5, uh, chapter 3, verse 5 and following. But before we do, I mentioned two weeks ago about a biblical worldview. You remember that? I said that they've done all kinds of studies about a biblical worldview. And there is about three or four, that's not 30 or 40, but three or four percent of our nation that has a biblical worldview. That's three percent. That means 97 to 96% do not. What does it mean? We talked about some of the uh, realities, the absolute truths in biblical worldview, but what does it mean to have a biblical worldview? And I didn't explain it, so I'd like to explain it now because it infuses Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. A biblical worldview, number one, believes there is a God, that he is ultimate, that he is right, that he is holy, that he is sovereign, that he created the world. That is the beginning of a biblical worldview. That biblical worldview is infused with the truth. 
The truth is the scripture. We would not know everything I just said about God if it was not for the Bible. Now, you might know there is a God from the sunrise or the mountains or the beautiful rivers, but you wouldn't know who that God was without the truth of the Bible. You cannot have a biblical worldview without the scriptures. So you have to have a high view of scriptures to understand, to have an understanding of who God is. So the first thing is God is in a biblical worldview. The second is the scriptures or truth is in it. The third part is, is that we have to believe that the truth of the Bible is the reality that's there. It's called belief. You could call it trusting. You could call it receiving. You could call it understanding. But there is a sense, as we talked about last week, of a step of faith towards the truth of the Scripture that leads us to God. We're Trinitarians, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Are you with me so far? Good. I don't think any of us who are followers of Christ would disagree with this part. God, truth, faith, or belief. This is where it starts to change, though. The next step is character. You can use the word attitude. You can use the word heart. You can use the word character. To, be a follow, to have a biblical worldview, you have to have the heart, the understanding. One of the verses that may be your life's first, trust in the Lord and he will direct your paths. What does it say in between trust in the Lord and he will direct your paths? With all your what? He doesn't say with all your action. He gets to that. But with all your heart, inside your heart begins the understanding. It's throughout scripture. It's the heart. We have to have character. Character matters in a biblical worldview. We'll come back to character because that's what we're talking about today. Out of character and the infusion of character comes your action, your behavior, what you do, what you don't do. See, so many people go from faith to behavior. And we judge people on their behavior and we miss the character thing. We kind of just leave it out, not important. That's because the signpost in our country is broken. Character is no longer important. If I can use an old saying, the ends justify the means. And can I say, we evangelicals, which is a subset of a subset of Christian believers, are being accused by the world of the end justifying the means. The non-believers are pointing to us and saying, you've lost your character. All you care about is the ends and not the means. And then after this, though, is then the results. What happens with your belief in God, in the truth, you have faith, you have character, you do action, then there are results. And we're so results-oriented, but we find out in the Scripture that we have no control over the results, do we? We have none. We have none. We pray for someone and nothing happens. Somebody walks in front of me and comes to Jesus that fast. I don't get it. I remember twice, two times in the last year, I remember one time, and he's here today. I remember um, I asked him, he had come back to a guy, about 30, came back to Jesus, said, how'd you get here? 
How'd you come to Boca Raton Community Church? And he named a Muslim who said, you're a Christian, you need to go to church. And Bill Mitchell has a great church and you need to go to that church. And he came back to Jesus through the Muslim. Now, months later, after he told me this, and I knew his friend, the Muslim, who's a friend of mine, his mom and dad came visiting in the winter, like many of you winter people, and they came up to me and said, you know, we've been praying for our son for 10 years. He left the Lord in college, he's now 30, and now he's come back to the Lord. Who gets the credit? I think God gets the credit. It was 10 years of mom and dad praying. It was a Muslim who opened his mouth to bring him here. And it was the word of you guys in the community of faith of this group, a body of believers, that kind of he stepped into the next step of faith. Isn't it amazing? I don't know what the results are. We're not tasked with the results. We're tasked with this part to the behavior. And then we let God do the results. And that's the hard part because we all want results. And we want results, and so we will um, mitigate and forego some of these things so that we can get the right results. And I tell you what, in a biblical worldview, you cannot leave these pieces out. You can force people to do certain actions. You can force things. You can force results. But it doesn't mean it's biblical just because it looks good. You can force your kids to believe. You know, it's, we talk about how many kids leave the church when they go to college. You've seen those stats, right? Can I just say, I don't think they were in Christ when they went. They were in the church. They weren't necessarily in Christ. We need to understand that people just don't walk away because we might have missed the belief. We went all the way to the action and the result. Come to church, be a part of church, do this, and we miss the belief and the character part. You need all of it to have a biblical worldview. Now, how does that all work? Elizabeth, come up and read Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 to 17, and then we'll open it up. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, 
so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is a bunch of lists. There's three lists, and then there's a conclusion to the three lists. Well, let me add a fourth list to get us really thinking about this, if I could. The fourth list is the most important list, which is the Ten Commandments. Have you thought of the Ten Commandments lately in Exodus chapter 20? There are two tablets in the Ten Commandments. There's the tablet of loving God, about our relationship to God. There's the tablet about loving our neighbor as ourself, as Jesus defined it. So have no other gods, no idols, do not take the Lord's name in vain, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, honor your father and mother, Um, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not lie, do not be greedy, and what's the other one? What? Right, thank you. So there's the six. So you have the six, you have the four. Now, here he begins in verse five, and he says, he gives us two lists of vices and one list of virtues. Now, with lists, at least in the Bible for me, sometimes I get a little blurry-eyed with lists. Like, which one am I supposed to not do and which one am I supposed to do? So what I'd like you to do, if you have your Bibles, your iPhone, or however you look at the Scripture, think of one or two of these at a time. One or two I'm not supposed to do, one or two I'm supposed to do. So don't say, oh my, there's, because each list has five. So there's five no's, don't do this. Then there's five more don't do's, then there's five to do's. Well, don't try to do all 15 and don't do 10 and do five. Try to get it. So let's look at these to begin. I want to look at the first list of vices. It's in verse five to seven. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Okay, here's the things we're not supposed to do. Put to death means don't do them. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And then he says, which is idolatry? the second in the list of the Ten Commandments. Have no other gods, do not have any idols. So he actually defines what an idol is. We have a definition of an idol, which is a little thing 10 feet or 10 inches high that we put on, you know, when they used to have the bales and the asteras and all of that. And we think those are the idols. What he's saying is in more modern times, and Rome was a more modern time than the old Babylonian times, he says, those aren't the idols. The idols are sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. It's interesting. The first couple of ones are sexual sins. The last one is, I want what you have. And he puts the I want what you have in the same bad list with these other ones. 
We wouldn't do that. Normally we go, all these sexual sins are in their separate place and just the fact that I want what you have, that's a, that's a lesser sin. He puts them all in there is as they are sins of idolatry. I'm not gonna ask who has which of these five sins. I'm, a lot of times I ask you to raise your hand. I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand. But on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you once walked when you were living in them. See, he's not mad that people do these things. What he's saying is we as followers of Christ should not be doing these things. I get kind of interested when we get mad at people for sinning out there. Well, you know what sinners do? They sin. God is calling us to a different way. He's calling us not to do this. And he continues in verse 8 with the second list. I'm going through these two lists a little faster so you don't get lost here. But now you must put them all away. So he's adding the next list. He's not saying this is a lesser list. I think he was just pausing so you could take it in. And now he's going, okay, let's, let's go to the next. Anger, wrath. Malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. What he's saying here is some of you are still doing it and you're lying about it. Oh, I don't do that. You know, you can be angry and you not know it. So only God knows you're angry unless you force it out of yourself. And he's saying... Don't lie about it. And seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, put on the new self, which is being renewed after the image of its creator. What he's saying with these five is that it goes against have no other gods. It goes against the first commandment. It's kind of an interesting thing. The other one goes against the second commandment. This five goes against the first commandment. So it's interesting, um, this week Elizabeth and I got in a car wreck. That's not interesting, it's just a reality. Uh, we're fine, the car's hurt, we're not. The car can be fixed. So, boom, guy hits us from behind. We're in a standstill waiting for the stop sign and waiting for the cars. We're a small car, it was a huge car, so the damage is great. The uh, driver comes out, he's a little sheepish, like that happens, but the passenger comes out and commits every one of those things. <laughs> very loud, very well articulated. I hadn't heard some of those four and five letter words in years. <laughs> but you know what he did? He started doing it against Elizabeth. Your wife is, and then off he went. Your wife is, and then off he went. Now, he was stuck between our cars. He couldn't get past the cars because the way they were hit. So he kind of comes up, and he's road rage, right? You know what my wife of 41 years did? She went right after him. That woman who just read the scriptures... 
She confronted his sin. Now, what helped was we were at a bank, and there were video cameras everywhere. And then all of a sudden, the police guy from inside comes out. The road rage stopped. And he went back in his car. Then these two big officers, bigger than me, show up. He was fine. But what did we do after that? It was interesting. I decided I got to do something because this guy is totally out of control with anger and rage and malice. And, and what's interesting is it, when someone has all that, it's really not about the car wreck. They came to the car wreck with it. You can't be that mad with a car wreck. The other guy wasn't. So I put my hand in the car and I said, let's be friends. And he put his hand out and he shook it. Then, you know, it takes an hour to go through all the stuff they make you go through. He got out of the car and he walked up to my wife, Elizabeth, and apologized. 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 He said, I am sorry for what I said. I was wrong. Now, the amazing thing is, is I love that result changing. He didn't come to Christ that moment, but he saw some Christ-like behavior. And that's what this next portion is about. Let's keep reading. Verse 12. Oh, excuse me. Let's go to verse 11. This is important. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Christ is all and in all. We, don't, we just skipped through that because we don't understand what that means. What he's saying here is, you Greeks who are well-educated but don't have, didn't, have, didn't grow up with God, you need this. You Jews who are monotheists who grew up with the concept of Jehovah, you need this. Those of you who were circumcised as children, you need it. Those of you who are uncircumcised, you need it. You barbarians. Now, we don't know what a barbarian is. Nowadays, anybody's a barbarian. Barbarians were the people from the northern coast of Africa of Barbary. These were the people that were out there. The immigrants that came into the Greek empire to get work, they were called the barbarians. You need Jesus. And then he says the Scythians. The Scythians were the Iranians, and then as you went north, they were the nomadic peoples of what is now Russia and the steppes of Russia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, et cetera, the steppes, S-T-E-P-P-E-S, the steppes of Russia. That's where they came from. They need Jesus. The poor people, the slaves need Jesus. The free, the rich people need Jesus. Christ in all, Christ is all. Whether you're poor, you're rich, you're a foreigner, you're local, you grew up religious, you grew up unreligious, irrelevant where you came from, what's relevant is what are you doing with Jesus Christ? That's the important thing. Then he goes on, he gives a little preamble, four things. He goes, he gives a preamble about God. Before he gives the list, he says, you are God's chosen ones, holy, loved, 
And then later down, at the end of verse 13, he says, and you have been forgiven by God. So before you realize it's a, that you're doing good behavior, just realize God chose you, he set you apart to be holy, he loves you, and he's forgiven you. And then he goes into the five that you need to do. What are they? Have compassionate, what? Hearts. We're in this section right here of character, have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He's saying these are the things that we as followers of Christ need to do. He didn't just say live over here. He was saying you got to live in a certain way so people see that you have the heart of God and not just the hands of God. Many, it's important that people see our hands and what we do, but it's important that they see our heart. And he goes on. And above all, excuse me, am I missing? I missed the part. Verse 13. With this, you're bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint, you're forgiving one another. And then verse 14, you're putting on love. So there's a bearing with one another, a forgiving of one another, and a putting on of love. So he starts out with this. He says, put this on. And then at the end, he says, put this on. Before I go on, real quick. How many of you have grew up in the north or live in the north of the United States or in cold, cold northern Europe, whatever it is? Raise your hand. Okay, good. I don't get it. My family moved north to get to Boca Raton. Okay, this is how far south we're from, right? Elizabeth's family moved north to get to Boca Raton. We didn't move south like you, so we don't get the cold. So I've shared this in the past, but when I was in college, I went to school in Chicago. Okay, I had never seen snow. 18 years old, never seen snow, because I was smart. (laughs) So... We vacationed in the summer, so you go to these places, you don't see snow. You see them up on the mountains. And so it was a Sunday afternoon. I went to church, got on a plane, and I was in my khaki pants, topsider shoes. I had a polo shirt on. I had a Miami Dolphins hat on, which is, I know that's very optimistic, but I had a Miami Dolphins hat on, and it was a 100-degree swing like last week. You know, I had this frigid air last week, 100-degree swing. I don't know what a 100-degree swing is. When I left at Christmas, before Christmas, it was like 40, 50. When I got back, it was 20 below. I didn't know what that meant. So when I got to O'Hare, big airport, nowadays they have Uber and you have the blue line goes into downtown. My school was downtown. They had none of that before. You had to get on the bus. So you wait outside on the bus, and then the bus took me to about a half a mile from the school, and you got to walk the half mile. No big deal, except it's 20 below. But here's the thing. I had my coat. I had a coat. We bought a coat. We had a coat. So I'm outside waiting for the bus, and I had a mustache back then, and I was crying involuntarily, and it was freezing. (laughs) And I was pulling off the frozen tears, and now I'm bleeding. I had no clue what was this. Why do you guys live there? I have no clue. 
Then I get on the bus, I warm up, and then I realize I got a half a mile walk. So I make this half a mile walk. I get to my dorm. I live on the 11th floor. My roommate's from Nebraska. The guys next to them are from, I don't know, somewhere out there, South Dakota or somewhere. They know all this. So I get up there and they look at me and they just start laughing. It's now midnight on a Sunday night and they're roaring laughing at me because I'm just... And I go, what did I do wrong? I had the coat. You know, it says, put on love. They said, it's not about the coat only. It's about what's under the coat. You got to have the sweaters. You got to have, when it's this cold, something under your pants. You got to have wool socks. You got to have something under your neck. They went on. I go, what are all these things? They were using names. I did muffler. I don't know what any of these words mean. I learned. I can handle the cold now. But here, it's put on love. But he, but he also says, before you put on love, make sure you have that compassionate heart underneath, that kindness underneath, that humility underneath, that meekness underneath, that patience underneath, the desire to bear with one another, forgiving one another. Then on top of it all, put on love. The Christian walk and Christian character is required not just to throw love at people, but there's times when you need those other things like compassion and meekness and forgiveness and kindness and gentleness, something about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. This is what you need under the big cloak of love. Yes, we need love, but unlike the Beatles and Taylor Swift, it's not all about love. It's also about these other things, and these other things are character. So if you strip the character out, we don't have the tools we need to help people, and I would say even to make it through life ourselves. And then he closes, starting in verse 15, with three great statements And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called, and be thankful. Here's the result of having this character. The peace of God will rule in your what? Hearts, not in your actions. They will that also, but in your hearts. You want the peace of, I don't have the peace of God. I'm working, working, working. Because the peace of God comes into your heart. Now, to help you with this work, absolutely, but it's in the heart, it's in the character that's important. And somehow we've lost this and our signs are broken. And he's saying, bring it back. And then he goes in verse 16, and let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing, praises, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We just usually just go, hey, we're supposed to sing worship songs. No, the reason we sing the worship songs is so that we can change our character so we can hear the word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? Over here, the truth, the scriptures, prayer, the Holy Spirit working in your life, all those wonderful things that build your character up so that you can do the work of the ministry, whatever that may be that God has called you to do. Do you see it? And then he says, and whatever you do, In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So we are to do the work of Christ. We are to do the words. We are to say the, do the, uh, say the words, do the deeds, but we are to do them in the character of Christ. Because when we strip out the character, all we're doing is good things in our own name. And we've stripped the opportunity to connect Christ with our actions. Now, our time is up. Take one of these two, one or two of these things. Don't try to go, oh, I need to be, God, I can't do this, I can't do that. Take one or two things. Just go, God, help me with these one or two things. So let me close with this. This week was Martin Luther King Jr. Day, an important day for our country. But it's an important day in our family's life because it was the day that a tragedy occurred and then a good thing occurred. On that day, on Martin Luther King Day, the Monday many years ago, a girl in Davie was shot by her sister. It was an accident. The two girls were home. Mom and dad are out working. They find in a shoebox up on the top shelf as they're exploring their parents' you know, uh, closet, the gun. And the gun was empty except there was one bullet in the register, nine millimeter. These girls have no clue what that is. They've played with squirt guns. The 12-year-old shoots it. The recoil of the gun hits the 10-year-old in the literally between the eyes. It was a tragedy of tragedies. At that time, our son, James, was sitting in a hospital dying, waiting for a heart in Gainesville, Florida, at the University of Florida. That heart was transferred from Davie to Gainesville, and he got the heart and lived. Through a series of miraculous events, we found out who the donor family was, the mother, the donor mother. Usually you're not supposed to know who donated because it could be anywhere in three or four states. It just so happened it was two towns over. And we learned the name. And so Elizabeth reached out to her in the spring of that year and said, would you like to meet us and meet James? And she said, yes. So we set a time out a few weeks later, and it's a Sunday afternoon, and as the time approached, we realized it was Mother's Day. None of us were thinking of Mother's Day at that point in time. We're just trying to let this kid live. She, this lady's dealing with her grieving. None of us thought of Mother's Day. <clears throat> so uh, we called her back and said, we can move it. It's Mother's Day. She said, nope, let's do it. So she came with her daughter, the one who had shot the other daughter. They came to our home with our three children at the time, four children, um, James and three. And we had a time meeting and greeting and connecting and all the rest. It was really a beautiful time. And at the end, Elizabeth said to Donna, the mother, she said, would you like to listen to the heart? And she said, yes. I would. And so I grabbed James, who was very thin at the time. I put him up on our counter. We had a high bar counter in the kitchen. And so he was equal to her. And she put her ear to his chest and listened to the heart. And it was one of those moments where time stops. Was she there for a minute, 30 seconds? Five, I have no idea. I can't remember. 
It was just time stopped. Our kids, her daughter, none of us spoke. It was just one of those pregnant moments of God doing something in the room. And as I thought of that moment later on, I realized that the heart of my son had been in her daughter until she died and had been in Donna's body as well. And I know this doesn't match perfectly, but I just thought of God and Christ. God has created us. He wants us to have the heart of Christ. And through faith in him, we get the heart of Christ. It's a heart transplant. It's not just a, oh, I believe now and I'm a Christian. No, you get the heart of Christ to live out the rest of your life and the rest of eternity as a child of the king. It's a beautiful thing. It's not just a simple thing. It's Christ came to earth to die so that we could have his heart. And if you've never followed Jesus Christ, that's what it's about, is having the heart of Christ because of what God has done for us. And it takes belief. It takes faith. And my friends, we're entering a new season in our church. We're entering a new year. You may be entering a new season of your life as Elizabeth and I are. Do not miss the fact that Jesus Christ came to this earth to die for us so that we could have a new heart. And that heart is the heart that we are to be compassionate and loving, gentle, meek, all those things. But you can't do that without having the heart of Christ. Let's pray together.